All right, Luke 8. This is where we've been. Said so the big idea in Luke 8, Jesus is communicating, proclaiming the good news by what he says and what he does. And we've seen some specific things that he has communicated, particularly through his deeds, that the good news is that Jesus is with us in the midst of storms. Um, we said that Jesus, in my opinion, he actually didn't want to calm the storm in Luke 8, to 26. He wanted the disciples to trust him enough to let him sleep. And that's where he, with us, the, the lesson there, the takeaway is that he, uh, he is with us even when it appears that he's asleep in the boat. We looked at the demoniac a couple of weeks ago and we said the good news there is that Jesus addresses every area of our life. He's not just concerned with our spiritual health. Every place where sin has wreaked havoc, every consequence of the fall, God wants to redeem and restore all of those different areas of our life. And we said our responsibility, so Jesus is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and what he's looking for from us is people who listen well, people who hear what he's saying and put it into practice. That's what it means to listen well, to hear and to obey. And the metaphor for that is these four soils. He talks about four soils in in, in a parable of the soils, and those four soils each correspond to a different condition of our heart. Our, Our heart can be hard. That's resistant to the gospel, like ground that's packed down that a seed can't penetrate. Those are the crowds in the story of the demoniac. Our hearts can be shallow. That's rocky soil. So we initially say yes to Jesus, but then our roots don't go deep enough. And so when we're tested, we fall away. That's what happens to the disciples in the boat when the, um, when the storm comes. Crowded. Our hearts can be crowded. That's the thorny soil. I said that's where most of us live in Marietta, our hearts are crowded. We initially say yes to Jesus, but there's so many competing activities, so many, so many competing concerns and cares that those things choke out the work of God in our life. We'll look at those today. We'll look at some crowded soil today. And ultimately, we want to be good soil. That is, we want to be receptive. We want to say yes to what Jesus is doing in our life and to continue to say yes to him. Today, we're going to look at two stories that, that have one point. We're supposed to read them together. And the reason I say that is we'll see the beginning of the first story, A, then all of the second story, B, and then the, beginning, the end of the first story, A, again. So it's kind of like an Oreo. So for me, it's a golden double-stuffed Oreo. That's my favorite kind. So story, then the middle, one story, second story, and then we'll go back to the first story. For some of you, you may consider it like a, a lettuce wrap with tofu if you're healthy. Any of you eat tofu lettuce wraps? That's good because I told the guys at nine, those things will not be in heaven, as a matter of fact. If you ever wonder what hell is like, it's tofu three times a day. Lots of gluten in heaven, though. Lots. Tons of gluten. And dairy. Let me read this. Oreo for you. A-B-A. Now when Jesus returns, I'm going to intersperse a few comments to help keep us on the same page. The action is pretty straightforward. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him for they were all expecting him. So just to remind you, Jesus and his disciples got in a boat, went to the other side of the lake, and they dealt with the demoniac. I said that I felt like he went on a mission. The reason he got in the boat was he said, I'm going to get that guy. I think that was the only reason he 
sailed. And I think he probably told the guys, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to be back. I think that's probably why they were expecting him, but we don't really know. Then a man named Jairus, or Jairus, however you want to say that, a synagogue leader came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with Jesus to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. Now pause there. That word crushed is the same word that's used for the thorns choking out the good seed in verse 14. In chapter 8, verses 14, when Jesus is talking about the weeds in our heart, that's the same word. So the crowds are really going to function as weeds or thorns. They're threatening to choke out the work of God in the lives of Jairus and this woman who we're going to see. So the, the kind of the, the tension in the story, the question is, are the crowds going to choke out what God wants to do in their lives? A woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind Jesus and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she'd been, how, excuse me, why she had touched him and how she'd been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith is healed. You go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, a synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. When Jesus arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James. That was his inner core of disciples and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead but asleep. Now, pause there. Jesus knew she was dead, but oftentimes in the New Testament, the word sleep is a euphemism for death. So what Jesus is trying to communicate is she's not, it's not permanent. This is temporary, just like sleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. And to be clear, that laughter is mocking. That's not that awkward kind of polite laughter where somebody says something and they don't really know what they're talking about and you don't know how to respond. That's not this. This is mocking or derisive Laughter. Jesus took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. So again, two stories, one meaning. I think the the broadest summary, someone approaches Jesus in faith. Both the woman and Jairus had faith. Someone approaches Jesus in faith with a need, and he meets their need. It's probably the the cleanest, shortest summary of the point in these stories. Someone approaches Jesus in faith with a need, and Jesus meets that need. So the good news, if we're trying to pull that out, what's the good news that Jesus is proclaiming through these two instances? It's that he responds to faith. Now, I'm going to belabor that point that Jesus responds to faith. And the way I want to try to make that clear is by looking at the differences between this man and and this woman, they're really very different. You can't get uh, more different than Jairus in the synagogue. And the, excuse me, Jairus and this lady who has been bleeding. You'll see this chart up here on the screen. I'm calling him the right guy, and I'm calling her the wrong girl. So he's the right guy, and she's the wrong girl. So Jairus is the leader of the synagogue. So he's respected. He's righteous. He's seen as favored by God. Uh, he comes to Jesus, and he has a very urgent 
need. He has a 12-year-old daughter, and she's dying. And time is of the essence. We see she doesn't even make it through the exchange when her dad gets back. That's how critical she is. She's literally on death's door. Uh, He approaches Jesus with humility. He, He walks up to him and falls down in front of him. And then he asks, Jesus, I want you to come and heal my daughter. Now, the woman who's bleeding, is she's way on the other end of the spectrum from Jesus. She's ritually unclean. I don't want to get into her condition because it's gross, but we'll call it uterine bleeding and move on quickly. And you can read Leviticus 15, which is one of the grossest chapters in the Bible, but you can read it if you want. Leviticus 15 explains what goes on, how a lady lives who's in a condition like hers. If you have a condition like hers, here's the box that you've got to live in. So every, so she was considered unclean. Everything that she sat on was considered unclean. And if you sat on the chair that she sat on, then you were unclean. Massively inconvenient for people to be in relationship with her. So if you sat in the same chair that she sat on, even if you didn't know, you'd have to go home and take a bath and put on new clothes and you would, have been, and you would be considered unclean for the rest of the day. So she had this condition for 12 years. The whole time that Jairus' daughter had been alive, this woman had been bleeding. 12 years. So you think back 12 years ago. Do the math. I was 28. Think about how different your life was. I'm think, I, had a, I worked at a different church. I had a 3-year-old and a 2-year-old. That was it. Think about all the differences in your life. Think of all the things that have happened in the last 12 years. Now, you imagine every day of every week of every month of those 12 years, knowing you're unclean. You can't go to the synagogue because they won't let you in. If you have any consideration for people in your family, you're saying, I've got I've to be separate from you. I'm going to isolate myself from you because at a minimum it's inconvenient for you. If you happen to touch what I touch, if you happen to lay down where I've laid down, if you happen to sit where I sat, well, then you're going to have to take a bath and you're going to have to put on new clothes and you're going to be considered unclean for the rest of the day. Think about how you would interact with people. Think of all the people you've brushed up against just today. And if you were her, that knocks them out. Then they've got to leave. They can't stay in here anymore because you touched them. Think how what that would be like. Again, even if the people who were in her life pitied her, but like they didn't, they weren't, uh, they didn't treat her like a pariah. They didn't say, "Oh, God is cursing you." Even if they're, they were compassionate and they had pity for her, felt sorry for her, they still had to avoid her and keep her at arm's length. It entangled everybody that she was with. You can imagine any time she had to go to the market, everybody clears out, gives her room. Very different life. From Jairus. And when I'm thinking about her approaching Jesus, her need is significant. For sure, it's important, but it's not urgent. She's lived with it for 12 years. It looks to me like she kind of cuts in line. Jairus comes to Jesus' face and he says, Will you come help me? She kind of circumvents that, seems to kind of, again, cut in line. Jairus actually says in Mark's version, he says, Will you come put your hands on my daughter? He uses that phrase, put your hands on her. And when this woman grabs Jesus' cloak, then that makes him unclean, which means he can't put his hands on that daughter. She she sneaks up from behind. In my mind, she's kind of crawling. Says she grabs the hem of his cloak. I think that's probably at the bottom. Uh, Jewish men, they wear this cloak and have these tassels on it. And some people thought, I think she was being superstitious. She thought there was magic 
Jairus at least approaches Jesus as a person, relationally. Will you come help me? She approaches him much more like a genie in a bottle. If I just can touch some part of him, then I'll be better. She's not looking for any type of interaction or relationship with him. Everything about her is wrong. Her condition is wrong. Her approach is wrong. Her thinking about Jesus is wrong. It's all wrong. Everything about Jairus is right, and everything about her is wrong. And if you look at the results, they both get the same thing. Jesus responds to both of them the same way. Each one of them, him and her, get what they ask for. His daughter is raised from the dead. Her bleeding is stopped. And so what that tells me is her wrongness and his rightness don't make a difference. It doesn't matter that he was a synagogue leader. It doesn't matter that she'd been bleeding for 12 years and was unclean. It doesn't matter that he was a man and she was a woman. It doesn't matter that she appears superstitious and he approached Jesus relationally. It doesn't matter that she snuck up from behind and he fell at his feet. None of those things matter. It doesn't matter that his need was urgent and hers wasn't. None of those things seem to matter. The only thing that seems to matter, the commonality, he says to her, your faith has healed you, and he says to Jairus, just believe. It's the same word, same concept, trust. Just trust me. That's what he says to both of them. Very interesting to me. I don't know how that sits for you. It's a hard one for me to get my mind around that all Jesus is looking for from me when I approach him is trust. I was a good boy growing up. I kind of like my resume and my track record. It doesn't matter to me a lot if God looks at that. And what we see here, I'm, I'm Jairus. Like, I'm the guy that does it right. And what I see in this is God doesn't care. My rightness doesn't make me more or less acceptable to him. I don't get to jump to the front of the line just because I'm the right guy. You may relate more to her. You may feel like, man, I'm a mess. I, I, don't, like my, I don't want anybody to see my resume. My track record is atrocious. Let me just sneak in. I'll take what I can get. Whatever crumbs are falling, that's what I deserve and that's what I'll take. And what you need to hear is it doesn't matter to him either. Just like my rightness doesn't help me, your wrongness does not hinder you at all. It's very interesting, particularly the way Jesus responds to the woman. She sneaks up, grabs him from behind, and he stops and he says, Who touched me? I think he honestly doesn't know. And the disciples are going... They're all touching you. You're being crushed by all of these people. It says they're pressing and crushing him. And they're kind of going, What's, we're on a schedule. His daughter is dying. You know who he is. He's a good guy. We've got to go help her. Why do you care who's touching you? But there was something different about the way this lady touched him. Other people have been touching him. He was the only one. She was the only one who was healed. So he stops. And time out, holds the whole entourage procession up, says, we're going to figure this thing out. And he keeps asking, who touched me, who touched me, who touched me. The Bible says when she realized she couldn't go unnoticed, that was her desire. She was looking to sneak in and sneak out. When she realized she couldn't go unnoticed, she raises her hand and said, it was me. I did it. And then I think Jesus has her tell the story. She tells her story. This is who I am, and this is why I did what I did. And I'm not bleeding anymore. If you were sitting, if you were an outside observer and you were watching this, be interesting, what would you have been thinking at that moment? Like if you watched the whole thing play out, you saw these crowds choking Jesus, you see Jairus somehow make his way through, 
fall down before him, you would have known who he was, a prominent leader in the community. Falls down, says, my daughter's dying, will you help? And Jesus says, absolutely, and they start going. And then if you were able to see this haggard woman kind of crawling through the crowd, grabbing on to his cloak, and then slithering, sneaking off, you may have wondered, I wonder what that was about. And then he says, hold on, what's happening? Who touched me? You know who touched him. You're wondering, is she actually going to raise her hand and say, it's me? And then he has her stand up and tell her story. I'm wondering what you're thinking. How is he going to respond? Is he going to rebuke her? Is he going to say, listen, this guy's first. He came and asked. Is he going to say, do you, do you know what you've done? His daughter's about to die. I was headed over there. He, I was going to put my hands on her. And I can't do that now because you've made me unclean. I'm ceremonially unclean. I've got to go take a bath. I've got to go change my clothes. And I can't do anything religious until tomorrow. I hope she makes it. That, I, I don't know what you would have thought when you saw her. Jesus called time out and have her stand up. What Jesus does is very different. I don't know that anybody expected that. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. She's saying, I want to stop bleeding. Jesus is saying, I want you to start living. They're not the same thing. Every aspect of her life in that one sentence, he changes. He calls her daughter. She spent 12 years cut off from relationship and community. One word, he pulls her back in. She's a daughter. Your faith has healed you. 12 years, she been, hasn't been able to participate in corporate worship. Now, who knows what's been going on in her heart relative to the Lord. I would imagine she's frustrated at a minimum, probably feels forgotten. Look past. He says, your faith has healed you. He affirms her belief, her trust in the Lord. Go in peace. Everything's okay. You're whole now. That's what that word means. You're whole. He changes everything with one sentence, and he does it publicly because he wants everybody to know. That's why he stops. He stops because he, he doesn't want her sneaking in and sneaking out. He wants everybody to know she's okay now, and you don't have to avoid her anymore. She's not just not bleeding She's whole. She's been restored to community. I don't know what Jairus is doing at that point. I don't know if he's looking at his watch, tapping his foot. I don't know if he's getting frustrated. Listen, we've got, she's in bad shape. I came at the last possible minute. My daughter is dying. You could, you could deal with this some other time. And then somebody walks up and says she's dead. I, I imagine he's devastated. Immediately, Jesus says, don't worry about it. You just believe. The crowds tried to choke out. That's kind of the picture there. The crowds, are they going to choke out what Jesus wanted to do in the life of this woman? She snuck up, grabbed his cloak, and she's sneaking back. There's a chance for the thorns, all of those people, to intimidate her, to keep her from raising her hand and saying, I'm the one who touched you. And she doesn't give in. She doesn't allow those thorns to choke out. And now we wonder, is it going to happen to Jairus? He gets to his house, and you've got these mourners. I don't understand the reasoning, but they were professional mourners. You'd have people come in, and they'd play the flute, and they would wail. That was somebody's job, was to wail. And so that's what he comes to. There's some people there who love this family, Jairus's family, and they're genuinely sad. And then you also have these professional mourners who were brought in to, I guess, help lead the, the wake. Maybe we can call it that. And Jesus says... Y'all don't need to do that. She's not dead but asleep. And they begin to mock. And you wonder in that moment what Jairus is thinking. Is he going to allow these weeds to choke out what God wants to do in him? Is he going to allow his embarrassment? 
about what Jesus said in front of these people? Is he going to allow their laughter to cause him to pull back and say, well, I, I, don't, I don't know. But he doesn't. He presses on. They walk into the house and Jesus raises his daughter from the dead. Once you leave, I want to leave you with a couple of thoughts. One, Jesus, God, however you want, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, they respond to faith. So when you're coming to the Lord in prayer, whatever that looks like for you, when you're asking him to be active in your life, what he's looking for from you is trust. He doesn't care about your reputation. He doesn't care about your track record. He doesn't care about your theology. You don't have to have it all figured out. He doesn't care about the significance or severity or the, of your need. None of those things matter to him. He doesn't even care about your approach. Again, the woman did it all wrong. Jairus did it all right. They both get the same result. That means none of those things matter. The only thing he's looking for is, do you trust me? That's hard for me to say. I want there to be something else. But there's not. All he's saying is, do you trust me? Do you believe that, I, that I've got this? Do you believe I'm a good father and I can act in this situation? Do you trust me even if you think I'm asleep in the boat? That's what he wants to know from you. This morning, I'm going to ask you in a few minutes, if you have a chronic condition in your life, to come forward for prayer. And the only thing that you need to come forward on is based on, do you trust him? It doesn't matter how long you've had your condition. It doesn't matter how many times you've sinned this week. It doesn't matter how much of the Bible you've read this week. It doesn't matter if you've got it all figured out about why God sometimes heals and sometimes he doesn't. None of those things matter. The only thing that matters is, do you trust him? Here's two passages from Hebrews 4, or from Hebrews, one from 4 and one from 10. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Then let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The, our approach, the last sentence, is based on the first two sentences. The reason we can approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we can receive mercy and grace is because we have a high priest who sympathizes with us. You see that? The last sentence is a conclusion based on the first two sentences. So because I have a great high priest and because you have a great high priest in heaven who gets you, he understands absolutely what it's like to be you. And because that high priest is in heaven interceding for you, then you can boldly approach the throne of grace, asking for mercy and grace in your time of need. It has nothing to do with you and everything to do with him. Here's Hebrews 10, maybe makes it even more clear. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, that's the key idea for us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by, by the blood of Jesus, not we have confidence to enter the most holy place by our own track record, by our own resume, because of our great need, because of how good we are, because of how bad we are, because of how many times we've asked, because we get the right person to pray for us, because we're anointed with oil, because we spin around three times and tap our head. None of those things matter. 
My confidence is based on the blood of Jesus and nothing else. By the blood of Jesus, a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since, we've drawn, since we have a great high priest, there's that idea again over the house of God. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Do you see what he's saying there? The only ground for approaching God is the blood of Jesus. I'm trusting in him. So when I ask you, will you, will you press through the crowd? Will you do a Jairus? Will you do a bleeding woman? Will you press through whatever the thorns are that would try to keep you from him? Are those your doubts? Are those people in your life who ridicule your faith? Just other things that you have going on. Is it your own sense of fear or embarrassment? That keeps you from asking, what threatens to choke out his work in your life? Can you say, you know what, I'm going to press through those things. And you're pressing through not because you're based on anything in you. Just because you trust in his work on the cross for you. I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. I want you to close your eyes. If you're helping with ministry, if you'd come forward. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to think about three things. One, if you have a chronic condition, I want to strongly encourage you to let us pray for you today. That's probably not something that you normally do. And I don't want you to say, I'll take care of it in my seat. Like, I want you to, like, press through the crowd. I want to push you to let them pray for you. It may be something you've lived with for 20 years. Unless God has spoken to you like he spoke to Paul. Like Paul, thorn in the flesh, three times I prayed. God said, I'm not going to take care of it. My grace is sufficient for you. If you've got that where God has said to you, I'm not dealing, no. I'm not, I'm not taking care of that for you. I'm not healing you in that area. I'm going to give you grace to live with it. If you have that, you can stay in your seat. Otherwise, I want you to come forward. I want you to let somebody pray for you. And I'm saying come forward in faith, and you may say, I don't have any. Like, I prayed for this 400 times. Nothing ever changes. Jesus said all it takes is a mustard seed, and you have that. And the reason he said a mustard seed is because he couldn't think of anything smaller. The issue is not how much faith you have in God. The issue is how big God is. If you can't come forward, you raise your hand. And I'll come get you. And I'll bring you up. Not because I'm great. Because I believe he wants to work this morning and I don't want you to miss it. So that's first. If you have a chronic condition, particularly physically, let these guys come pray for you. Dads, I want to challenge you. I think about Jairus. 
bringing his 12-year-old daughter's need before Jesus. There's some of you, and that's what you need to do this morning. You don't need to go get your kid and bring them here. You just need to come forward in their place and say, this is a situation we've got here. And God, I need you to work. I'm asking you as a dad to move in the life of my son or my daughter. We want you to come forward. I'm looking around. Bob Cagle, if you'll come, come up. Bob's a granddad. Some of you dads may want to go and let him pray for you. I don't want you living dads under any sense, particularly those of you who may have kids who are a bit older. There may be some guilt there that you blew it at some point. If you had done this or not done that, things would have turned out differently. Whether that's the case or not is irrelevant. What matters is you're sitting here now. And your kid is where your kid is. And you need Jesus to intervene. So don't allow guilt, whether it's real or imagined, to keep you from moving forward. Taking your responsibility and the opportunity that you have to bring your child before the Lord. And then third, it's more general. We didn't spend a lot of time on it, but you know there's there's a work that God wants to do in your life. Maybe you've heard him say something to you. Maybe you sense some type of stirring and it's, it's really young. It's really tender. And you're nervous about weeds choking it out. Maybe there's a you've had a thought about maybe changing something in your life and you know it would be good. And you'd even say you think the Lord is leading you in that direction but you're nervous about doing that thinking of all the, the ramifications and the implications and again it's, it can be a bit overwhelming I want to ask you to let us pray with you that like the woman like Jairus you wouldn't allow thorns to choke out what God wants to do you may be thinking small I just want to stop bleeding he's thinking big I want you to start living give him a chance to do that so I'm going to pray then we'll have a chance to respond God, I confess it's hard for me to say all you look for is trust. I I relate to the right guy. And I think that gives me a leg up with you, honestly. I want to say here that I recognize that's not true. And I pray for the right guys who are here today that we would all recognize it doesn't give us a leg up you love our obedience you love our commitment you love all of those things those things don't they don't cause you to move on our behalf any more or less they don't change the way you love them they don't make you love us more and so I got, God, I pray for right guys in here that we would say, help me to trust you more. Help me to grasp how long and wide and high and deep is your love for me. And as I understand on a more significant level how much you love me, it would motivate me to trust you at a deeper and deeper level as well. God, I pray for wrong girls. They do it all wrong. They think wrong. Their life is wrong. They approach wrong. 
pray, God, they would not allow any of that to keep them from responding to you this morning. The wrongness of whatever their perceptions are about their life, even the reality of their life. God, I pray that would not keep them from saying yes this morning, from taking a step and saying, I trust you. So God, increase our faith. I pray for those who have chronic conditions. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. They open it up in a wound by saying, all right, I'm going to give you another chance. God, I pray they would see progress in their circumstances this week, that they would see physical improvement this week, that you would bring healing, not because of how great they are, not because they went to the right prayer team, not because anybody said the right words, or just because you're a good father and you long to give good gifts to your children. God, I want to pray for dads who have sons and daughters who they're worried about. I pray that you would give them faith to come forward. No sense of embarrassment would keep them away and no sense of condemnation as they come forward. Nobody hanging their head just saying, this is where my kid is. I need you to get involved, Jesus. I pray that you would. God, I pray for those who are looking to make a change in their life. And that change is being threatened by all these thorns. Choke it out. God, I pray for courage for them this morning. To fight through the crowd, to ignore those who are laughing and mocking. To allow this work that you're doing in them to grow and to flourish. In Jesus' name. Amen. So you guys can stand. I would y'all come forward and Bo will dismiss us after this song.